So we have had four weeks of this series of walking. Um, and so Ryan spoke the first two weeks, and then Tim Lovell spoke, and then last week Gabe spoke. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to those four messages on the podcast, I, I recommend that you go back and, and do that. It's, it's, it's remarkable how three different people speaking on this topic actually have a very similar theme uh, throughout their speaking. And I don't know if you're like me, but I don't really like this series. <laughs> uh, what, one of the things that, that, that I enjoy about church is, is coming in and being challenged theologically in my mind. I like to walk away and I like to think about these things and think about the implications. Um, what I don't like about church is when my life changes or should change because of it. And what I have found throughout the last four weeks is I begin to be nudged in, in certain ways of, hey, maybe I should think about this, right? So I've been thinking a lot about my, my phone um, and how much I use my phone. Um, and so I, I decided to put, um, put some limits on it. So I put some screen time limits. I have an iPhone. Um, and so basically I shut down all my apps at five every night and all day on Saturday and Sunday, right? If I'm home with my family, um, there, there's a way, I just found out there's a way to make sure that your emergency contacts can always get through. So my wife can always get through via text or phone call. And so that's what I do. Every, no one else needs to contact me after those times. And what I find, and so you open your phone and you go to click on and a little warning comes up and says, hey, you're, you, you, this, your screen time is shut down for the day. Like, do you really want to go into this? And you have to say yes for one more minute, yes for 15 minutes or ignore this. And that simple act of that reminder reminds me, oh wait, I'm not supposed to be on my phone during this time. It's amazing how many times I pull out my phone and get that reminder. And so I, I had to take it a step further because it wasn't working. Because eventually I would just get frustrated. I'm like, yes, ignore that time. I don't care. I want to see what's on the news. Because I don't have social media. Um, my social media is just like Google News, um, which it's funny. When I first started reading Google News, it was like really good news stories. Now it's all just clickbait nonsense, but I love it. <laughs> um, and so I get drawn in and addicted to it, and I get distracted. So now we have a new rule, which is if daddy has his phone out, it gets hidden. Um, and one daughter will always remember where she puts it, one won't. So it just remembers who, who ends up getting it. Um, and that's been really hard for me. The, the simple act of, of not having my phone, of not pulling it out, because I pull it out constantly. My, my, my dad makes a joke. He, he goes, why do you have this nice watch if you check your time on your phone all the time? And it's true. Like, if someone asks me what time it is, I will pull out my phone, even though my watch is sitting right here. I don't know if any of you else do this. So it's been difficult for me. And so as, as I was leading up into uh, this time, uh, I was listening to Gabe's sermon from, from last week, and he mentioned that people touch their phones 2,500 times in a day. And I think that's a small estimate for me. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I need to try to do Sunday morning without a screen. And so I ask that there not be any slides today and that if you could bring your physical Bible, great, otherwise we have them here. I would ask you to be uncomfortable like I am and not use your phone today. So if you need to share a Bible with somebody else, um, just to kind of avoid the screen, just to be part of that practice. Uh, it was funny, uh, in preparing for this, in the, in, for this message, 
I, I was also convicted of how much I use technology to prepare for things. Like when I, when I prepare for a sermon, I'm very much, like I said, I like the sermon to be very heady, very knowledge-based, right? I have books spread out everywhere. I have like 20 tabs open on my computer, my iPad's open, my phone's open, and I'm constantly going and I'm making sure that I have every answer exactly correct. And so I said, okay. I looked at my wife yesterday as I was kind of writing and I go, I can't speak off my iPad tomorrow. If I told them they can't use their phones, I can't speak off my iPad tomorrow. Like, what, do, what do I do? i got to write this out. And, and I don't know, I showed Ben this, but um, I can't actually read my handwriting, so I don't actually know how this is going to go. <laughs> but I was trying to take a different approach to this. I was trying to take an approach that said, how can I reflect on the last four weeks of sermons? And so I listened to them again, one after another. Um, to, to kind of hear what, what is it that we've been talking about in terms of walking. And then I've been reflecting for the last couple of weeks on Psalm 23. Because I had two choices. Right? I could speak on ta- Psalm 23, or I could talk about Moses and Moses wandering. Moses wandering, that's, that's easy <laughs> for me, because I can just go to the commentaries, I can just go and, and have a three-point expositional sermon, and, and we're good. But reflecting on Psalm 23 in the theme of walking is more difficult because it means I have to prepare in a different way. And so I'm preparing and I'm writing out, which I don't write. Um, and, and one of the things I always do in the mornings before I preach is I get up early before everybody, I make a cup of coffee, and I sit and I walk through my message. And I say it out loud and I time it. And this morning, I got ready to do that, and my daughter walked out. And I said, no problem, she's going to ask me to watch a show. She says, Daddy, can we cuddle? Think about Tim's story <laughs> and the wolf. And I say, yeah, we can cuddle. It's okay, she's going to ask for a show anytime now. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes goes by, and she's just sitting there right next to me, and I'm like, ah, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. What I hope you get out of the sermon today is an evaluation of, of the practices that we've been talking about. Maybe you've tried some that Ryan or Tim or Gabe have mentioned, um, and you want to evaluate how that's going. Maybe you haven't tried those yet, and, and you want to, to try some of those ideas, and I'll give you some, and some may come to mind. But more than anything, I hope that what you can get out of this is just a way of reflecting slowly upon Scripture, not in a way of gaining information, because as Ryan says, we don't need more data. <laughs> we have enough of that. But in a way of transformation, of allowing God to speak to you through the scripture and God to speak to you and how this could impact your life. So if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 23, I have mine up here today. Um, (laughs) I didn't know if I was going to share this. I will. It's funny. Um, I only use my Bible to preach out of when I preach to older congregations. <laughs> you should, I just have the scripture on my iPad. So this is not something I normally do at Restoration. Um, so if you're like, oh, he has a Bible? That's crazy. I do. I do have one. So what I'd like to do is I'd like us all to read Psalm 23 out loud to start off. And if you have a different version, that's fine. And in fact, if you have this psalm memorized, I would encourage you just to say it from memory. But let's read Psalm 23 together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so as we walk through this psalm, uh, we'll, we'll take it kind of chunk by chunk, and I'm going to have us read the different uh, sections in it together out loud like we just did. As I was reflecting on the past sermons, um, one of the things that Ryan mentioned was um, an author that he's really fond of named A.J. Swoboda. And A.J. Swoboda was my mentor when I was in grad school. Um, he helped me with my thesis writing and all that stuff. Um, he's, he's a wonderful thinker, um, and I've, I've sat under him for a long time. And he brought up the story of, of the, um, his, his son talking about the, the tomb, right? Did Jesus, did Jesus just go out the back door? And he was telling this story, and I was thinking about A.J. in this moment. And one of the things that came to mind was another thing, another story that A.J. talks about when it comes to baptism. And he talks about it um, in terms of the Roman Colosseum. And so you have, uh, you have in the first century, right, you, you've, got, you've got the Roman Colosseum, which is used mainly to kill Christians, right? So you have these Christians who are going to death as martyrs. Um, they are captured. Um, they are held in prison underneath the Colosseum. And they come out and they walk in through one gate. They are faced with animals, gladiators, whatever it may be. Um, and then their bodies are carried out the other gate. And the, the gates had inscriptions on them, just to make it ever so clear. So the gate they came in was called the gate of life, and the gate they walked out was called the gate of death. And the martyrs were happy to walk through those gates into what was going to become, because death led to eternity. There is a trust in these martyrs uh, that is, is unparalleled. Um, in fact, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, um, one of my favorite quotes by him, actually the only quote I know by him, <laughs> is um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Anytime you trace in church history um, where Christianity is illegal, where Christianity is oppressed, um, and I'm talking like really impressed, like you're going to die for your faith, um, that anytime that happens, like you see church growth. Right? You, see, you see people like really going at it for their faith. And, and so this is what these martyrs, they had this, this trust. And so looking at verse 1, read along with me in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. So this idea of, of, of the Lord, right? If, you, if, you're, if your version is like mine, it has the capital L-O-R-D, um, right? This is to signify that the, the, the character that we're talking about is Yahweh. Right? It's, the, it's, it's, it's Yahweh that we're talking about, meaning all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, uh, which is that there is only one God. So when we're talking about the Lord here, we're not talking about anyone other than the one God of Israel, Yahweh, um, Yahweh's own self, the one true God. And a shepherd, um, when we talk about a shepherd, we talk about Oftentimes, when, when, and Jesus talks about this too, when he says, I am the good shepherd, right? The sheep know me, they know my voice. There's this, there's this idea of safety 
the sheep feel comfortable. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. They follow the shepherd. They come back mostly when called. Um, and they, and they, they walk with there. There's this idea that the sheep's wants have decreased and their satisfaction is increased because they don't have any wants. They're with the shepherd. They trust the shepherd. The shepherd is going to provide for them. Uh, Moving on to verses 2 and 3, please read with me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We talk a lot about walking the last four weeks, but this is like a stopping point, right? If there is time to stop and rest, you you know, if, if you're that person who's always go, 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 right? And you're like, walking is hard. Well, imagine now you have to stop. But there's something beautiful about the idea of a green pasture because it indicates life. It indicates that life is going, life is continuing, life is flourishing, life is comfortable. He leads me by quiet waters. Sheep, by nature, are really more scaredy cats. They get scared easily. So if the water is rushing and it's loud, it's going to make the sheep nervous. So the shepherd has to find the quiet waters to lead them in order to drink. And so there's this idea that the sheep trust that this rest is going to come. They trust that this nourishment is going to come. They trust that they can be a part of it. I work with young people. Uh, I, always, I always have, except for um, one stint of three years at a coffee shop um, where I worked with adults. Um, and so I'm constantly in, in this world of teenagers. And the one thing that we used to say about teenagers is that we have to get them engaged, right? We created these, these, these fancy programs in youth ministry, and we created these, these, these eye-catching things, right? Whether it was like a series or these big trips or these all-nighters. Do you do all-nighters? Have you ever done one of those here? Oh, don't ever do them. I'm still paying for them. They're cool. Anyway, so, so you have this idea where, where we had to get students engaged, but something has shifted because students are more engaged than they've ever been. They're engaged in their phones. They're engaged in social media, mainly the screens in their life. So now the challenge is how do we disengage? How do we get students, and I think it applies to us as well, it certainly does to me, how do we disengage from the screens? How do we disengage from the busyness of life? I work with a bunch of students who honestly are busier than I am. Right? They have different sports every night of the week. They have this club and that. They're constantly, they constantly have tons of homework. Right? These kids, they get up at 5 and they go to bed at 11. It's insane how much they do. So how do we get them to disengage? How do we provide space for them to sit by the quiet waters, to spend time in that comfortable green grass and allow the shepherd to just be with them, to know them? He 
He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This reminds me of, of what Gabe talked about last week uh, when he talked about Jer- in Jeremiah uh, chapter 6, right? And how, how the, the indictment against the people of Israel was that this is the good way to walk with the Lord, but they didn't do it. So this idea of righteousness for his name's sake, for God's name's sake, right, that walking with him actually provides rest. And this is uh, echoed then by Jesus who says, if you come follow me, I will give you rest. The shepherd knows the way. So I'm curious. We've talked a lot these last four weeks about this idea of disconnection. What have you tried? It may, maybe you haven't, maybe it's failed, right? Or maybe you haven't done it well, um, or maybe it has well. But I'm, but, I'm, but I'm genuinely curious. And when I say this, I actually am asking um, for, for somebody to share. What have you tried um, that's helped you be disconnected, um, whether in the last four weeks or, or if there's times before this? Anyone? But anyone be willing to share kind of on the spot what they've tried? Yeah. So you went for a walk, no timeline. Your, your kid, he's three, yeah? Right? So he probably loves that there's no timeline. How was that? Slowing down for someone else. Yes. Interesting. Good. Anyone else have something that they've tried? Yeah. I heard about this. That's awesome. How how was it? So fun to be bored. It's so different. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Roland, do I dare ask how that three days was for you? <laughs> good. Oh, good. We we have a constant argument in my house. You know, when I leave, my wife takes care of the kids. When she leaves, I go down to her parents' house. So it's <laughs> good. W- one more. One more. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes when we slow down to help someone else, we actually are are beneficiaries of it as well. So there's three ways to think about disengagement if you haven't tried something yet. 
Verse 4, if you would read along with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Another way to say um, death would be the, the darkest valley uh, in, in, this, in this particular translation. And you, and you think about that, right? The, especially like in the wintertime, right? A dark valley, a valley that virtually doesn't get any sun, right? It's all shadow. Um, it's, you know, the snow sticks around for even longer than it stuck around this winter. And it's just, it's just dark and it's cold and it's lonely. And many of us have been there. And if you want some encouragement and you haven't heard Tim's sermon on, on that, that he spoke on, I really encourage you to go um, listen to that because he does a, a fantastic job of painting that picture for us of what it looks like to be in that place. But one of the things that I think is key here is the idea that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is not the point of rest. This is not where we are made to lie down. This is the point where we are walking through. And the idea here is that we don't stop. It, it may take longer than, than we want, um, right? Like Elijah only walking six miles a day for 40 days. Um, although, Ryan, Elijah also ran a marathon, just so you know, in the end there. So it does happen in Scripture. <laughs> but the idea is that we keep moving through. We keep moving through. We don't stay there. When we talk about grief, um, there, uh, you, you talk about the stages of grief. Um, there's, there's an author, and I, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he talks about the sixth stage of grief. And I remember this. I, um, it was during COVID time, and so I was out, um, and I was listening to podcasts, and um, I think I was probably on a run um, and I was by myself, and I remember exactly where I'm at. And he starts talking about the sixth stage of grief. He said, the sixth stage of grief is making meaning. Making meaning out of, out of what has happened. It's not getting over it. It's not getting through it. It's making meaning. And so I'm listening, and I'm trying to understand, and all of a sudden he says this, and I've, I've said this before up here. He says, because if, he says, he says, when you make meaning, you have to feel. Because if you don't feel you won't heal. And if I step back, I'm like, oh, that's, that's incredibly like, easy and pithy and kind of cheesy. But in that moment, I broke down. Like I'm, I'm on a run, I am weeping, because that's where it finally hit me, that I often don't allow myself to feel things. It's much easier for me to not stop to keep going, to fill my head with information, right? I'm going to research all about grief rather than feeling it. And it gave me, that phrase just gave me the, the, the freedom to just feel what I was feeling in that moment. And it was compounded by many, many, many things. And Ryan talks about this um, in, his, in his sermons about um, the idea of, of resurrection and, and, and Jesus coming back through the same door that he, that he entered in in death. And asks the question, like, where is that for us? Where are the things that we need to go back to in our lives to grieve? to find meaning. And I think this is an important part of the conversation because we don't make meaning for other people. 
We don't make meaning for other people. Meaning can only be made by us. It, it, when Joseph says what, 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 what you intended for harm, God intended for good. Joseph can say because it happened to him. Joseph's brothers can't go to him and be like, hey, Joseph, I know we, we meant to hurt you, but look what God did. No, it doesn't work that way. But Joseph can say it. So as we grieve, we find meaning. It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the experience. It doesn't even make us grateful for the experience. But what it does do is help us keep moving forward, even if that's at a slow pace, six miles a day, just walking to get through it. Eventually, we do come through the valley. When I was growing up, I grew up a conservative Baptist, um, and that makes some of you shudder, and it makes me shudder too. Um, Maybe we should delete that from the recording. Um, And I was taught this story of Jesus as the good shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And so he, he leaves the 99, he goes after the one, and he brings it back. But when it was taught to me, it was taught that the, the, the rod and the staff are important parts of the shepherd's tools. It's not just for correction, it's also for discipline. And it was taught to me that the, what the shepherd would do is he would go and he'd pick up the sheep and he'd break both his legs. And he'd carry him back because he cared about the sheep you carry him back. But the message that I heard as a kid is, if I wander off, God's going to break my legs. And that has shaped me much more than I'm willing to admit. This idea that if I step out of line, God is going to punish me because that's what the good shepherd did to the sheep. And so Ryan talks about the idea of like, what do we have to unlearn? For me, that's one thing I have to unlearn in this passage, is, is my identification with, with a shepherd is not, it, it, it's, it's someone who you walk with out of fear rather than you walk with because you know they love you. And I have to wrestle with that because I know in my head that's not true, but that has not been my practice the whole life. So I wonder, and I won't ask you to um, say this out loud, but have there been moments where you have been challenged in what you've been raised to believe? Are there things that you're learning about Scripture, learning about the way that God acts that is contrary to the way you walk in your life? Do you have some deconstruction, some unlearning to do? If you would read in verse 5 with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. It kind of sounds like David is bragging here, doesn't it? Right? I'm sitting here with all my enemies, and the feast is for me, and my head is being anointed. Look at me. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, and my first inclination was to say, okay, well, I need to Google this and figure out what this means. And I was like, wait, no, I can't use technology what do I do? So maybe this is helpful for you. When I, whenever I don't have time or access to technology, I ask a simple question, what would Jesus have to say about this? What would Jesus do? And so I think about Jesus, that he has a comment about enemies, which is to love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. And so I'm thinking about that. I'm like, hey, Jesus, easy to say, have you ever done it? Okay, because you're pretty harsh to the Pharisees who are clearly your enemies. And I was reminded of the story 
of the woman at the well. It's from Samaria. Uh, if you can visualize in your mind, um, right, Samaria is like smack dab in the middle of, of, a, of a common journey between, uh, for, for, for Israelites to do. But because they hated Samaria so much, they always went around it. They took the long way around. But before this story, Jesus decides to go through Samaria. He walks into enemy territory, right? The Samaritans are, are hated by Jews, right? They're, they're, they're vile people. They're, they're, um, they're, they're, you're, not, you're not to have any kind of interactions with them. And yet Jesus goes and he shares a drink with a woman who's there in the middle of the day, who's been an out, she's an outcast of the Samaritans, right? It doesn't get much worse than this in Jesus's concept. And so I think about Jesus and the fact that he is culturally geared to avoid Samaria with all costs, and he goes through and he fights the one person who has been outcast from the Samaritans, and he spends some time with her. And I think about where we're at in society. We, the, our biggest issue, one of our biggest issues, is, is the fact that we have an us versus them mentality. We like to categorize people in different ways. Why? Because when people think different than us, it makes us uncomfortable. People think, it just does. It just makes, like, I, I have friends who think different than me, and I don't know if they can call them friends anymore because I don't really talk to them that much because it's just weird. It's hard. It's difficult. And I imagine this conversation was difficult for Jesus as well. And I don't have any, like, challenge for you here of, of you know, so go out and find that person who annoys you the most and, you know, have coffee with them. Uh, I, just, I just point out that when it comes to being in the presence of enemies, this is what Jesus did. So for what it's worth, that's how Jesus walked. You'd read verse 6 with me. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know some of your translations say mercy. Um, that's the translation that I memorized growing up as well. Goodness, walking the righteous path. Jeremiah says, if, if you would just do this, Israel, if you just walk the righteous path with God, then you would find rest, right? Verse three, he leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Love, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Follow, because we're walking. We're not standing still. Things can only follow if we're moving forward. Dwell. Dwell is, 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 a, is a fun theological word. Um, and I spent a lot of time with this word um, in, in seminary. And um, one of the ways we talked about it was the mutual indwelling of the Trinity. There's this idea that the Trinity is constantly interacting with each other, like right? constantly dipping into each other's lane in this beautiful dance that happens. And one of the great mysteries about that is, is that's actually the model for us. Because we have spirit in us. And so there's this, there's this mutual indwelling where as we dwell in the house of the Lord, the Lord is also dwelling in us. 
And when we do this, we live in God's house. We're doing things in God's way forever. Because I, I, I have to believe, I have to choose to believe that what we do now matters, not just for now, but also for eternity. I think there is, there's a way of living that we will come to know fully when, we, when, when, when fulfillment comes. But I believe that we can taste and be a part of that now. And if I didn't believe that, I would not be here. I talked about, at the beginning, this idea of the Colosseum and martyrs. And this, this, this idea that they came in through the gate of life and they went out through the gate of death. Many years later, as they're doing archaeological digs, they found um, baptismal pools, right? So you dig out deep enough and you find stairs that lead down to this pool and stairs that lead out. And there is an inscription. And as you walk down into the pool, they had reversed it. And it was the gate of death. And then you were baptized. And you came out the gate of life. These early Christians embraced this idea that only in dying can we live. And so they took what the Romans were taunting them and they made it a part of who they were in their life. So what I want to do in closing as I want to read um, these verses again. And I would have you just listen this time. And I'm, after each section, uh, I'm just going to ask a question for reflection. If it makes you comfortable to sit with your eyes closed, I encourage you to do that. Uh, if it makes you comfortable to have your, your palms facing up in a receiving posture, I'd encourage you to do that. Wherever you need to be comfortable today. And I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. And my hope is that in this time of reflection, uh, God will speak to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What areas in your life do you need to slow your pace to a walk in order to hear the voice of the shepherd? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How do the things that you want in life lead to dissatisfaction? How can you align your wants with the Lord? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup 
overflows. Where have you been wrong about God? How will you fix your thinking? Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is it that you can get rid of in your life to make space for God to dwell with you?